Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. We're the best, never spit in jest, only bring finesse, never rest. When I put the pencil back down on the test, press your mental kings and queens, cause it's time to play some chess. Yo, put your thinking cap, consider blinking back that sinking feeling that our world can't come back. It can, the world's problems, they were caused by man. So it stands to reason they can be solved by our hands. Yo, nothing is final. Every suture can be thread. Every door can be opened. Every future can be tread. Every possible obstacle can be lost or born. And we're talking Bitcoin mining with my homie Austin Storms. Whether the weather is super rainy or wetter. Market insanely levered or level-headed. Endeavor to build something go-getter. Other than total indebtedness every time. You develop a rhyme. Ensure that it's better. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of Firmwide Research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show for you today. As I said, Austin Storms, co-head of Bitcoin Mining at Galaxy, is our guest. We'll talk about how miners are preparing for the having interesting power strategies and dynamics in the ERCOT power market, and much more. We'll also check with our good friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, as always, to discuss markets and macro. But before we get to all of that, I need to remind you, please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or an offer, recommendation, or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. It's a really interesting week in Bitcoin markets. A lot has happened. So let's just jump right into it with Bimnet. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, my friend Bimnet, welcome to Galaxy Brains. Thanks for having me. Yeah, what an exciting week it's been so far. It feels like ETF uh, speculation and 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 consideration is really picking up after that uh, headline that turned out to be inaccurate uh, was published on Monday morning. What did you see uh, on Monday? Uh, we saw a tremendous amount of short covering um, in spot and in options form. Uh, we saw renewed sort of interest, renewed attention uh, to the Bitcoin um, ETF um, and, you know, the timeline around that. Um, and, you know, since then, we've seen healthy follow through um, in, in the price action of Bitcoin. So far, you're, you, you've turned the 200-day moving average, which was resistance, into support now. Um, and generally speaking, Bitcoin has been trading much better than the rest of the crypto complex. So it's led to a Bitcoin relative outperformance um, and just an, uh, an outright, you know, sort of continuation of, of, of the uptrend that, that you've had since, you know, hitting a low of, of 25K. And so, you know, broadly speaking, I think folks that were short any convexity um, panicked and they quickly covered, um, you know, that that convexity via spot and via, via options, and it really kind of showed how underpositioned the market was for for an actual, you know, ETF announcement. And so, you know, I think broadly speaking, these these developments were were constructive. The price action that you've seen after has been healthy, um, and it's now going to, you know, be at the forefront of people's minds that, you know, we might have an ETF that gets approved before year end or in and around year end. And so you don't want to be caught with your pants down, you know, in an asset that can literally moon. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it was an exciting and, and obviously strange the thing that happened just for our listeners. If you didn't see, although I'm sure almost everyone did, uh, Cointelegraph had it, uh, apparently erroneously, certainly erroneously, we know now, but didn't right away posted that uh, BlackRock's uh, Bitcoin ETF spot application had been approved by the SEC. That was false. It has not 
none have been approved. I think prudent for uh, market observers to rely on uh, official communications uh, from the SEC and others, maybe issuers or something, uh, to find out when that happens. Um, but what are we watching? Uh, I know you and I have been following the amended S1 filings. We've seen um, Fidelity, Invesco Galaxy, and ARC have all refiled their S1 applications uh, with amendments. And, and and you know, those, I would say, the updates have been relatively benign, right? Sort yep. of expanding disclosure sections and stuff. You know, what, what are we watching for? Obviously, we're watching for others to refile. But what does that tell you? Uh, the you know the sort of character of those amendments, like w- when you think about what it might mean. Yeah, I, I think I think you're you're totally spot on. The the character of those uh, amendments is is completely benign, right? They're not like you know huge fundamental changes to the filing. It's more like you know there's some risks around this stuff, and it's like you know the proper disclosures, and and so I think what we're getting at and what we're we're looking for is just you know, language that's becoming more consistent um, amongst the filers as this process develops. And the more, the closer you are to, to just consistent language across all of the, the filers, um, the closer you're going to be to actually getting a, an ETF approval. And then most importantly, um, I'm watching the, the Jan 10 date for, for the ARC ETF, which, you know, I, I don't think that there's a right now feasible path for, for the SEC denying that, that filing. Um, and so I'm kind of viewing that as, as kind of the, the last uh, kind of stick in the sand or whatever <laughs> proverb you want to use. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's kind of, you know, what, what I'm watching for. Um, in addition, it's just, you know, the, the one thing I, you know, folks need to keep in mind is that the last time, you know, Bitcoin traded at new all-time highs, it was around hype for an ETF because folks did believe that an ETF product would make, you know, th- this asset class, you know, really get off to go off to, to the next level. And I've said this before, the two things you have to keep in mind with, with the ETF is that the U.S. capital market is the largest and best capital market on the planet. Um, and an ETF um, has proven to be one of the, the best financial innovations uh, ever in, in history for, for wealth creation. You are combining those two things with a Bitcoin ETF product. And you know, as the price action recently, t- you know, suggested, like it's going to be unequivocally bullish, and the, the the amount of supply that that's available in the market in terms of just liquidity, you know, for for buyers versus the liquidity that's going to be brought on by by an ETF, I think there's there's a complete mismatch, and so you know, I think as time goes on, the market will continue to price in that delta or that that probability of an ETF approval much 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 higher. And therefore, I do think you're going to be in one of those situations where not necessarily buy the rumor, sell the news, but you are going to have a, a rally in crypto prices going into the ETF. Now, are there some potential negative catalysts between now and then? You know, government selling, potential finance action. Yes. Uh, but I do think those are going to be dips that, that get bought. And ultimately, I, I don't see a world where, you know, you're in mid-November and we haven't gotten, you know, we have a bunch of new S1 filings and it's getting closer and you're not, you know, kind of approaching, you know, trend highs um, for the year. So I'm, I'm constructive um, on Bitcoin, um, you know, f- just specifically because of, of, of this catalyst, but but also because of, you know, kind of the, 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 the macro backdrop uh, as well. Let's talk about that real quick because... Because, um, you know, in sort of response to the the fake news for Monday, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink characterized on Fox Business 
um, crypto, which he later said uh, he's not allowed to say Bitcoin because of their filing. Um, I don't know what advice he's getting, but that crypto, he said, could be part of a flight to safety along with things like gold and the dollar, um, given the macro geopolitical and macro environment like it, what it, let's let's think about that and 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 how that fits in in your mind so i mean this is a you know a brutal take <laughs> but let's just say that you know bitcoin's magic internet money or just some random asset right and and it's not you know something that has a long history but it's it's some it's, it's just a random asset that the blackrock ceo is, is talking about right if he characterizes it as you know something that's going to be a, a flight to quality and he's one of the more influential macro uh, folks on the planet because, you know, he runs a $10 trillion asset management firm. Like, I'm going to be interested in buying that for the yeah. reasons he specifically said. So when, when he puts a narrative that this is now a flight to quality asset, a gold asset, right, a safe haven asset, I am going to take him at his word because that is kind of the the messaging that, you know, the world's largest asset managers is going to go out to, is going to go out with. And so I think it's it's incredibly bullish in the sense that it, it will help shape the narrative and the conversation around Bitcoin in a way that's much more direct, as in he's the guy that goes into investment committees, that can go turn a board that's, you know, one or two people away from investing in, in an asset. He can go to these sovereign wealth funds and be like, why haven't you allocated yet? And so, and, and you know, if, you know, he can do that and the price is appreciating, you know, folks are literally going to look like, you know, n- not idiots, but they're going to look unprepared and or just not having done the, the proper work. Because yeah, if, if they if, don't consider it, you don't consider it at the very least. Technically speaking, if you just think about Bitcoin as a series of, of price returns, right? We know that over time in a portfolio with a small allocation, it has added um, to performance. It, it has delivered outsized market returns. In addition, it has diversified your returns. AKA, it's improved the, the risk and the reward profile of of your you know investment portfolio. And so, for somebody that's just looking you know at at their portfolio in the context of portfolio construction, like you have to seriously consider this because it helps your returns and it reduces your risk. How on earth are you not thinking about that, especially when the the CEO of the world's largest asset manager is giving you a product and telling you that this is the narrative around it? Yeah, we just put out a report uh, about two weeks ago called Bitcoin in a portfolio that goes into some of that historical uh, impact on uh, portfolios that Bitcoin has had. Um, Let's shift gears briefly, uh, Bimnet, and talk about the broader macro environment. I saw that two-year yields were making new highs, trend highs. Uh, earlier this week. Um, today. So the debt, yeah, today. So t- people still don't, uh, they're still selling uh, those those bonds. Uh, what what, do you, what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that the data has been hotter than most market participants had expected. And so what you've recently had is a string of really hot, hard data. Uh, you, you know, going back to a couple weeks ago, you had, you know, over 300,000 jobs printed in, in non-farm payrolls, so strong labor market. CPI, was really strong. Um, it surprised higher 0.4 month on month. And the components that you cared about most, 
also came in the hottest, owner's equivalent rent and Supercore, which you know is a gauge of, of services inflation, all surprised higher. Um, and then you had retail sales, which you know is is, is a good indicator of, of of the U.S. consumer. You know, consumption is like seventy percent of the U.S. economy. Also surprised higher, um, meaningfully so. You're talking about like a 0.7 month on month increase in, in retail sales, and and August numbers were, were revised higher. So the critical parts of the economy and the critical like points of hard data that the the market looks at uh, have all surprised higher, and therefore. Uh, you have seen a repricing of, of interest rates um, to, to, to go along with that. And you're now seeing, like as we speak, 30s are sitting at over 5% now. Um, Two-year yields are at five and a quarter. Tens are, look like they want to go to 5%. And this is in a world where we have a potential geopolitical you know, conflict that involves billions of people, potentially. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think it's it's quite telling. Uh, in addition, you know, none of the supply stuff has, has slowed, you know, improved like biden's trying to do another hundred billion dollar aid package what does that mean that's debt that has to get financed that's more interest payments etc that just puts things out of whack and so there's nothing really tackling the supply issue in the market and the the fed even though they've recently tried to talk down expectations of of a hike you know again in, in the front end they can't ignore hard data like this you know i understand that monetary policy works with a lag and we're seeing cracks but when the main thing you're targeting is not going your way and is still surprising higher, you kind of have to question, you know, am I right in my policy? And so that's kind of, you know, the juncture we find ourselves in, which is a lot of hot data and a Fed that doesn't necessarily want to move uh, the front end for it and a market that is taking that as a sign that it can sell the back end, you know, particularly in the context of supply. Um, and dollars have gone, you know, are now super bid as a function of, of U.S. rates, um, you know, backing up again. Wild. Um, well, it continues to be a tricky and interesting market. Uh, my friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Alex. Let's go to our guest, Austin Storms, co-head of Bitcoin mining at Galaxy. Austin, thank you so much for coming on Galaxy Brains. Alex, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we had, uh, I visited our site in West Texas with you last week. Um, and it was really eye-opening. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some of went down. There was a solar eclipse. We'll talk about that. Um, but I was like, it is time. Let's get Austin on the show. Um, you've been in Bitcoin mining a long time. Uh, how did you, uh, how, how long and how, how did you get started? Yeah, I've, I've been in Bitcoin mining for, um, man, I guess almost almost seven years now. Uh, I got I got started with a, a, a friend of my my dad's who was interested in the space. Uh, he, he funded he kind of funded and bankrolled my first facility, like a small half megawatt site. Um, and then since then, you know, I, I founded a company called Bearbox. It was pretty early on demand response, and then worked with Marty Bent and the team at Great American Mining to do the flare gas stuff. And then came to Galaxy from Great American Mining, and uh, I've been at Galaxy now for for really the last two years. Yeah, it's it's been a long road. Um, I don't know that many people, to be honest, that have been in Bitcoin uh, this long at this point. Um, but a lot has changed. I mean, maybe before we go deeper in Bitcoin mining, like just high level thoughts, how how has mining changed? I mean, obviously, hash rates, I'm not looking at the chart, but I mean, if I think about seven years ago, that puts us around uh, 2016. I mean, hash rates probably like maybe 100x since then. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's been an insane growth uh, in in network hash rate. Like as you mentioned, you know, there's also been this technological shift on the ASIC side, where ASICs have gotten just like 
almost hit that point in the S curve where the new S21 that came out from Bitmain recently has amazing efficiencies and, and the power consumption really hasn't changed that much. And so it's it's a different game than it was seven years ago, um, but very excited to, to kind of be playing that at this point. Yeah. So how do you think about Bitcoin mining in general, right? I see some people say uh, that they're securing the network. Um, other people are maybe solely opportunistic. Uh, you had an interesting way of thinking about it. You were explaining to me last week. Um, to maybe tell our audience how you how you think about Bitcoin mining. Yeah. Um, so look, my, the way that I think about Bitcoin mining's changed over the last seven years. Um, I, I I previously was like altruistic, help helping the network, which miners do. Miners are the heartbeat of of the Bitcoin network. As as blocks come out roughly every ten minutes. Um, but a, a few years ago, I had a conversation with Chad Harris, who was formerly at Winstone and Riot, um, and he and he kind of he kind of changed my perspective on on what mining is as as a fundamental business, um, and 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 really you know he 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 communicated to me that miners are really nothing more than widgets, and you you have an input cost of X, you you run that X input cost of electricity and other operating expenses into the widget. And it outputs a Y value, and the business really is like an, an undifferentiated commodities business between the X and Y. Like that margin is the dollar that you make or the dollar that you lose. And so, yeah, I am. Uh, like I, I think miners, miners should be more commercially focused on on the difference between X and Y. And al although like we we do support the network and we do support like certain certain development patterns within Bitcoin, like at the end of the day, we, we are running a, a, a what it, what I consider to be a commodities business. Yeah, very interesting on the on the input side. Um, I think the obvious thing people know about is like cost of electricity. Right. But what what else goes into that input side? Yeah. So cost of electricity is is 80 to 85 percent of, of your input costs. Um, in addition to that. You have just general general labor um, and and really SGNA expenses uh, across the across the business. That includes everything from your data center techs to your electrical technicians to your mechanical technicians to your back office functions. Um, and and those really like those are probably ninety five percent of your input costs. In addition to that, you've got you know general maintenance and, and tools and and like fan bearings and pump couplings and like the miscellaneous stuff on site that breaks that you need to fix uh, in, in order to run the business. Um, and so really electricity, uh, labor, um, and, and that includes too, like like the software component. We, we run an in-house software team uh, and then like general parts and, and maintenance requirements. So on the electricity side, I know that for uh, a long time, the game was almost exclusively signing long-term power purchase agreements with producers, right? Um, how has that evolved, I guess, particularly in, in the, you know, ERCOT markets? Yeah, so uh, exactly what you said. For for the first, you know, I would call it maybe six or seven years of Bitcoin mining, the game was, you know, buy, buy as much fixed price electricity that you can at a, you know, co-located at a hydro hydroelectric facility or from a from a regulated utility uh, what we're seeing in markets like ERCOT now like deregulated electricity markets there's there's variability in in different power strategies where you can you can hedge power forward you can participate in demand response programs you can participate in ancillary services programs you can ride index and take spot exposure from the market like there's there's just a, a slew of optionality that you get in in markets like ERCOT or PJM that you don't get uh, from from the traditional side of, hey, I've got a regulated utility, 
that's got this tariff rate for industrial customers and I'm going to pay them, you know, four cents or five cents fully delivered for the next five years. Now it's, hey, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, like short forwards on power in load zone west and I'm looking at, okay, what is my index exposure? What's our thesis on solar and wind interconnections and variability on these shoulder hours where ERCOT has to manage the ramp up and ramp down? Like the, the game has entirely evolved. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we hired Blake King very early on uh, at my tenure at Galaxy, because he's got the subject matter expertise to understand the physics portion of that equation. Yeah, very interesting. We had Blake on our podcast a couple weeks ago, so recommend our listeners check that out. Blake is a, an expert in ERCOT power markets, and um, it's a it's a very interesting and sophisticated thing that uh, both consumers and I'm assuming producers in ERCOT are are dealing with now. Um, when I drove into the site uh, last week, there were maybe hundreds of wind turbines. Um, how has the growth, I mean, Texas is enormous in wind um, and and solar. How have the, the, the growth of these renewables affected the grid generally? Yeah. So in general, like the, the way that we view the increased penetration of renewables, specifically in Texas, is you've got this great overlap of, you know, prime wind and prime solar, uh, really in the northern hemisphere in West Texas. As, as more and more wind and more and more solar interconnects and that grid mix gets higher VREs or variable renewable output from, from wind and solar, what we're seeing is like, like this barbell distribution of, of pricing almost, where you've got really cheap pricing during the day. For example, when we were on site Saturday, I think, I think power prices were like steady $0 per megawatt hour in Load Zone West because it was sunny outside of the small eclipse event. Like it was sunny and it was relatively cool. Um, but you, you get this variability in, in what I consider to be like the PVGR or like the photovoltaic uh, generation ramp up and ramp down in the morning and the evening where you've got 12, you know, 10 to 12 gigs of solar ramping up and ramping down that creates a physics problem for, for ERCOT in the event that there's like a significant amount of like system-wide demand or, or load on the grid. And so a, as we see more and more solar interconnect and more and more wind interconnect, like my, our, really our general thesis is that we get very cheap power when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing. Uh, but during, during these like, you know, the early morning hours and late evening hours when the sun's setting, uh, there, there's a there's a physics problem that's difficult to solve, uh, and we we expect that there's going to be more and more high price events during those hours. Yeah, and those are when people wake up and they turn everything on, they make breakfast, they, and then it's when they come back from work, right? And they cook dinner, they make, watch the TV, right? Those are the higher demand periods. I exactly. Yeah, and and like in the summer, those those higher demand periods they correlate, like with exactly what you said, folks are coming home from work. It's 105 degrees or 110 degrees outside in Texas. They're cranking down the air condition to get comfortable. And so you get this like this glut of residential load that's ramping up at the same time solar is is also ramping down or beginning its ramp down. Right. And that's just a difficult physics problem to solve. Um, yeah, it's it's really it's really fascinating. So how do Bitcoin miners then, you know, contribute to solving that physics problem? Yeah, great, great question again. Um, so Bitcoin miners have really two two options to help solve that that physics problem. 
The first is ERCOT's you know, demand response or ancillary services programs that allow, that allow ERCOT to control the ramp up or ramp down of mining facilities based on the obligation that the mining facility and the load resource carries forward um, for, for that specific program. And so there are things like like responsive reserves, non-spin, uh, ERCOT's most recent program, ECRS, that aims to solve specifically that solar ramp down period in the evening. And then also miners can just respond to wholesale power prices every five minutes within ERCOT. And so at, as solar ramps down in the evening and those prices begin to spike, miners that are price responsive loads within ERCOT are able to curtail the facilities to reduce the total system demand and have a, have a negative effect or net negative effect on power pricing during those periods. So the, the demand spikes, the cost spikes, and then miners can just turn off, basically. It, exactly correct. So the, the way that we view it is, you know, any any miners in the state of Texas that are running what we call index or, or spot price exposed, they have they have a dollar per megawatt hour strike price for for their specific facilities and maybe even more granular for that for their specific machines. Those miners respond to wholesale prices in a way that when the arbitrage between the input price X is less than their output price of Y on a normalized basis for the, for the actual power being consumed, like, great, run, there's a positive ARB there. When power prices spike above the value of the lost load for those miners, the miners are economically incentivized to then turn off to avoid those high prices where they're running marginally negative against the real-time spot price. Yeah, and that helps the, in addition, prote protects the miner from mining at an uneconomical price. It also essentially frees up significant load for the grid, which helps bring the price down for everyone, right? It, exactly. Yeah, that's 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 the other point that's oftentimes missed. So like right now, I think, I think ERCOT's large flexible load, the most recent literature that they've put out, is roughly 2 to 2.2 gigawatts of large flexible like mining load within the state of Texas. As power prices go up, how ERCOT determines power prices for the next five-minute sked print is really just solving the disparity and the difference between supply and demand. So a price print above what the value of the lost load of the miner is, you you may have because there's a there's a uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's like a similarity between that that value of the lost load based on the number of machines that are running and the type of machine. You may have two gigs of miners start to ramp down when they see that price print, which alleviates the difference between supply and demand that ERCOT's trying to solve every five minutes. Yeah, it's wild. So this is what I was really hoping would happen uh, and did happen briefly when we were at the site last weekend uh, during the solar eclipse, I'm saying to myself, I'm talking to Blake and uh, and I'm talking to Austin and I'm hearing that, OK, like you're explaining the solar uh, physics problem to me. And I'm like, well, while I'm there, isn't the sun supposed to basically turn off right over West Texas? And it did. Right. Although we didn't actually get a great view of it. I think it was about 80 percent covered where we were. Um, so you could see the light changed and stuff, but it was still plenty of sun to like keep the, you know, it wasn't dark out south of us, um, you know, near like San Antonio, it was pitch black yep. uh, for a little bit, but over many parts of Texas where the solar is, it, it was significantly reduced. Right. And, and I was like, I wonder if that it will price the spike and will our facility curtail what happened? Yeah. So, you know, we were we were standing inside uh, inside the Helios facility, kind of watching our our main dashboard that shows the site load, the power prices, et cetera, et cetera. And 
as as we reached that peak eclipse, you know, power prices went from I th I think in the in the low dollars per megawatt hour, like single digits dollar per megawatt hour, immediately to. 100, 200, 300 dollars per megawatt hour, as as ERCOT was trying to manage the the ramp down at the beginning of the eclipse across their entire footprint, and so prices spike. We we begin to curtail as we're standing there. We see the first price spike, um, and you know, in addition to the prices that we saw, you know, because and I think I told you this, Alex, like. Traditionally, ERCOT manages like a like a two and a half to three and a half hour ramp down of the solar at the end of the day. But like yeah. this solar ramp down was almost, you know, 80 to 90 percent of nameplate capacity of their expectations over an hour and a half period. So the velocity of the ramp down was much quicker during the eclipse event. And so they actually ran a I believe they ran an off cycle sked, which is a inter five minute sked run within their systems to provide an additional price print and additional direction to load resources and generation resources within ERCOT to help balance the grid because the ramp down was so quickly. And so it was yeah. really cool to see see that play out in real time and be in the facility when it started to curtail. Um, but that's that's the second way that miners do help help with this grid issue. Yeah. And it wasn't like you or any of the folks down at our site were like running around flipping switches, right? Like we watched it in an automated basis, right? Does our, does the software do that? Yes, the software does that. So um, we, we run an in-house like proprietary software program that manages all of our curtailments, resumptions, um, everything related to our power strategy. And that's all automatic. It runs 24-7, 365, monitors a set of conditions that we think are important in making those determinations. Uh, and, and ultimately, like, as you're standing there, we, we don't have, you know, we don't have 100 techs running around flipping breakers um, right. and, and manually shutting machines down. Like, we, we manage all of that through software now. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, let's, let's shift gears a little bit um, and talk about... Um, some Bitcoin development stuff, if that's interesting. I mean, I, you know, we talked about before um, some of the inputs, but what about some of the outputs, right? So we know the output we're talking about is Bitcoin, right? It's BTC is what the machines literally create. Um, there's a lot of debate in in the Bitcoin world about, uh, you know, and there has been for as long as Bitcoin's really been around, the proper use of Bitcoin, the you know, what Bitcoin's really meant to be used for, and I would say there's been a big discussion, more discussion, I think, than maybe ever, but certainly in years uh, since perhaps the launch of ordinals earlier this year about Bitcoin as a platform. So not just Bitcoin as a, a, a monetary network, but also perhaps as a platform upon which other applications can be built. Um, you've got things like drive chains and new layer twos that are launching, you know, does how does that factor in, you know, to like, what does a miner think about that? If, if you're thinking about it as a commodities business? Yeah. So my, my, my personal belief is that, uh, all development on top of Bitcoin is, is good for Bitcoin. Um, you know, a, as we look at from, from a mining perspective, what it means to have ordinals, uh, or to have these drive chains, like my, my general, you know, non-specific understanding is that the increase in transaction fees caused by this usage is, relatively good for not only Bitcoin, but also good for like our business. Um, a as a miner, like any time that I have a, a spike in transaction fees that makes me more profitable, um, I'm, I'm not 
I'm not ever going to not take that, right? Like, like I'm, I'm always going to say, okay, more transaction fees, great for the business, increase the value of the Y and the spread between my X inputs. That's it. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like, um, but of course, I mean, miners also, when it comes to say like new protocol development questions, right? Bitcoin also has to keep functioning, right? I mean, obviously, right? Right. So it's it's an interesting balance. But I, you know, I've heard, you know, we won't go deep on drive chains. Maybe I'll do an episode on what drive chains really are. But there's been a lot of debate for those that follow like Bitcoin, Twitter. Um, but I, it does seem pretty straightforward to me, right? Miners collect revenue from newly issued Bitcoin and from transaction fees that transactors attached to their transactions uh, when they send them. So just increasing the delta between the inputs and outputs, which of course this would, you know, any additional fees would do seems like a, you know, a, a, just a general no brainer. I think I, we haven't seen uh, really any mining, uh, many miners, I should say, we haven't seen many miners speak out against or in favor of most of these things, but I have to assume most are in favor for that are in favor theoretically, at least uh, maybe not specifically on any one proposal, but theoretically on on sort of any of these platform. Yeah, type plays. I, I think theoretically, you know, when when you're running a business, um, it's it's difficult to it's difficult to say that any increase in the profitability of your business is not something that you support. But to your previous point, Alex, like, you know, if, if any of these drastically change the the consensus rule set or mechanism in like their proposal. Obviously, Bitcoin still has to work. And, you know, at, at the point in which the base layer does ossify and we are we are not, you know, uh, o opening Bitcoin up to any major, major changes. I think that's where we're, we're comfortable at least saying, hey, anything that you build on top of this, great. But like, don't mess with the underlying Bitcoin, like don't mess with the underlying consensus rule set. Yeah. So the the in your mind, it's sort of like if the risk of an of an upgrade or new type of usage approaches anything that could be existential, a problem for Bitcoin, then you certainly wouldn't be in favor of that. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, and, and you know, just like do we a couple of random questions here? This is Bitcoin mining things that I think about sometimes. <laughs> so like you had the China ban, right? Supposedly. I mean, I, well, we know a lot of hash rate came offline and we then later saw a lot of hash rate come online in the US, which has, you know, better property rights. And I think there's reasons for that. Plenty of energy production. Um, there's still mining in China though, right? I mean, I know like Cambridge and others that try to estimate this, like they, they, they claimed that it went to zero, but like that doesn't seem true. Are they, are they still mining in China? I look, I, um, I have no definitive proof that they're still mining in China, but I also have no definitive proof that they're not mining in China anymore. And so yeah. like, as, as I understand it, there is, there is some mining activity still going on in China, albeit less than there, you know, than there was before the big ban. Um, but there is, if, if I was a betting man, which I, you know, Alex, I am like, I would say there's probably, <laughs> there's probably still like low double yeah. digit mining activity, uh, in, in terms of network hash rate with, within the borders of China today. And then you mentioned GAM, uh, who you worked with, uh, great American mining. They were really focused on the flare gas opportunity or are focused on it, right? That's the, what is that just for our, our listeners who may not know, what is that type of mining? Yeah, so so fl flare gas and, and being able to monetize wasted flare gas. Um, when I, when I was at Great American Mining, I was the uh, director of engineering, so I was in charge of all of our hardware and software for setting up these systems at upstream oil and gas production facilities. And flare gas, for people who don't know it, it's like it's like a waste product of of the oil and gas like upstream EMP process. So oil and gas companies they typically care about 
the crude. Crude oil is like their their main product. That's what they that's what they produce. That's what they sell to a midstream company and deliver it downstream to refineries. In the process of producing that crude, though, there's associated gas that comes in, in into the production process. And what do they do with it? If there's midstream pipeline or takeaway for it, they'll sell it into the midstream pipeline. But if there's not, and there's some type of either physical constraint in the mid, midstream infrastructure, or like it's just not economical for them to sell it, they'll flare it and burn it on site. Um, when I was at Great American Mining, like we we stood up infrastructure to go on site on oil pads in North Dakota, in Wyoming, in Pennsylvania, to take flare gas from these facilities that were producing the oil and generate electricity on site to mine Bitcoin in these very remote areas. And there are a couple other companies that do this as well. Um, but no, it was, it was a really interesting experience, um, especially from an engineering, engineering standpoint. Yeah. Uh, I bet because you're out far in the middle of nowhere. There's a lot of containerized stuff happening. And I guess is the idea that for the producer, uh, the the gas is essentially a, a byproduct, right? Like if they don't have takeaway capacity for the gas wherever they are, you know, drilling remotely, then like you said, they they flare it or even vent it often, right? Just methane, yeah, about methane, it, right? It's, Just going right into the atmosphere. <laughs> It's exactly correct. The majority of the majority of the gas composition is methane. Now, I, I will say, like, we don't really vent gas in the United States. We we always really combust it. Um, and so, okay. but that combustion process and that's that's like the that's like at the top of a, a like a smokestack looking thing on an oil field. That's the burning flame, right? <laughs> exactly. That's the burning flame that you see. Um, and oftentimes, it's it's blue. Sometimes it burns with black smoke because it has heavier liquids in it. But th that's exactly correct. It's a byproduct of of the of the oil production process. And the the way that we structured things at Great American Mining was, hey, like this is found money for the producer. You, you sell us this gas locally on site because it's not economical for you to sell it elsewhere. We pay you for it where you were otherwise just flaring it and we come in and set up everything else. And so it was a, it was a win-win. Um, and then, you know, Great mm -hmm. American Mining got acquired by Crusoe last year uh, in, in the throes of the market. And so Crusoe, and they do that too. Crusoe yeah. does that as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because you're getting cheap electric electrical generation so i guess you, you run like a methane combustion engine or something like that generator electrical generator right that takes the those gases yep. um and then you mine there and and i guess like mining doesn't use a lot of bandwidth right like you can mine on out in those remote oil fields what do you need connectivity wise like a cell phone basically or yeah so look when we when we started on that journey a few years ago there was no there was no mature product like like starlink right now um that al right. allows you to have that remote connect Activity. And so we had to get super creative. Um, one of the things that, that we did was stand up like multiple cellular like modems within the containers that would directionally point to faraway towers and then oh, wow. to decrease the bandwidth from the mining machines because sometimes you had like two or three megabits up and down, you would, you would stand up a Stratum V1 proxy locally on network uh, so that those miners pointed locally there and the Stratum proxy was what was what actually communicated with the endpoint in the pool. Yeah, wild. Um, it's and, and then I think just one of the last points too is if you're combusting the the methane into you produce carbon dioxide, right? Which is, you know, both are greenhouse gases, but methane is a significantly more potent greenhouse gas, right? So it also has a sort of an ancillary benefit of, of being better for the, you know, for the environment and for carbon, um, you know, carbon production or whatever we call it, right? Yeah, it's to totally correct. So the, the I, th I think it's called the, uh, the 
warming potential of methane is like right. 20 to 30 X higher than actual like carbon dioxide as a byproduct of, of really combusting that methane. And so, you know, what we specifically did and what others do is you stand up a, like a reciprocating engine on site or even a turbine, if the gas quality is good enough. And the, the exhaust manifold from that, from that recip or from that turbine, it's like, it's outputting CO2 where previously like you're running a flare stack that has some efficiency, who knows what it is to burn that methane. And you, you take a uncontrolled process and you turn it into a controlled, calculated, measurable process. Um, and that's always better for the environment. Yeah. Even if you burn it and flare it on top of the, the, the stack, like some vents out, right. It's just like, it doesn't actually all get combusted. So now you have more, um, it's, it's really interesting stuff there. I know there's a lot more we could talk about Austin. I'll just end it here with, um, I don't know what are, what are miners doing to prepare for this upcoming having, uh, that is going to happen in April of, of next year. Yeah. Just generally really, really good question. Um, what are miners doing? I think, I think miners are, are shoring up their balance sheets. I think miners are restructuring debt. I think miners are preparing to operate in a, in a environment that's, you know, less conducive to this 98 to 100% uptime that we've seen in the past and more conducive to optimization of free cash flow for the business uh, with, a, with a lower uptime. And so I, ideally, like miners are staying alive. Um, miners are staying alive with, with worsening economics <laughs> going to the having, unless there's some catalyst that changes those economics prior to, I right. think, mid-April of next year. Yeah, I think it's expected now. Clark Moody's dashboard tells me it's expected on April 24th, if we assume 10-minute block times uh, between now and then. Um, Austin, this is great to have you. We'll have to have you back. Thanks so much for coming on Galaxy Brains, Austin Storms. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.